Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, uh, we are finishing Matthew chapter 12 this week. <laughs> That's good. And next week, just kidding, we're not starting Matthew 13 next week. As we've been going through Matthew, uh, there should be some things that are standing out and things that we try to mention uh, repeatedly about this. Uh, Matthew, as he is writing his gospel, as he is writing uh, historically about uh, what he is trying to communicate, and as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all do, uh, Matthew's isn't always in a chronological order. But Matthew is very specific in what he is trying to communicate, and so he will take sometimes gatherings of stories, uh, and it is usually the first couple chapters is uh, the intro, and then there's a discourse. So we went through the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and then we called that kingdom living. As Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount, he is showing you this is how you now live to represent the kingdom of God. Then we come to another discourse, chapter 10. He is a, a long speech that Jesus, that Matthew has recorded that Jesus gave. And then chapters 11 and 12 uh, start to demonstrate what it looks like when you live out this way as you represent the kingdom of God. And then starting next week, we start, or two weeks, uh, we'll be in chapter 13, and it is a grouping of parables of these different stories that Jesus is trying to communicate to to explain different aspects. And so today we're just going to be in four verses, and this is the closing of chapter 12. And it kind of almost looks like a side note or uh, doesn't really quite make sense sometimes when you see these things, but just know as Matthew is writing this, as the Holy Spirit is guiding him how to record this, this is not by accident. Uh, Matthew is trying to communicate something very clearly in which I hope to communicate to you this evening. Now, I don't know if you have ever, does anybody in here, just by a show of hands, and I know this is a personal question, does anybody in here own or drive a car? Just raise your hands. Okay. A good amount of you. Good. Some of our elementary school, not yet, but you're getting there. I don't know if you've gone through this like I have. I have owned several cars in my life, mainly because of the types of cars that I buy. But when you get a car and you start driving it, and all of a sudden you start to realize like, oh, there's a lot of Honda Civics on the road now that I own a Honda Civic. Or whatever vehicle that you might have, all of a sudden it seems like everybody owns a Toyota Camry. And just about everybody at some point in their life will own a Toyota Camry. <laughs> but there's always that feeling of now that you own something, now that you see something, now you can't get away from seeing it. And so one of those things I want to point out tonight as we, again, are just in this four verses, but then if you go back and you read through the entirety of Matthew, you will start to see that Matthew is very specific as he is using these groupings. Uh, Matthew repeatedly uh, uses three different terms, if you will, and he is grouping people into three different categories. The first thing that we see Matthew do is he uses the word disciples. Uh, Matthew uses the word disciples, and when he uses the word, when you see it in the book of Matthew, it isn't always just what we now know as the 12 disciples. Uh, the disciples, the, the meaning is, these are the people who are committed. 
In other words, they are following, and as we uh, begin to talk more and more about discipleship, the disciples are people, and a disciple is somebody, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you have made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, that means that when you see something that Jesus says to do in his word, you do it. It demonstrates that you are committed. Uh, If you have a job and your boss tells you to do something, you demonstrate your commitment level to your employer by doing it. Therefore, so much more when the God of all the universe, the creator of all things, who has provided us with love and joy and peace and salvation, when he tells us to do something, we demonstrate we are his disciples by doing it. And so Matthew, when he uses the word disciples, these are people who are obeying Jesus. They are following him. They are going where he goes. They are willing to give up whatever it is they need to give up in order to follow him. The second term, and this is where there's a very clear distinction, is the crowds. When Matthew refers to the crowds, there is a big difference between disciples and crowds. Uh, There was many more disciples than just the 12. In fact, uh, some recordings have him in Matthew chapter 10. He actually sent out 70 disciples, 70 people that, as he said, go do this in all the towns and villages, they went out. They were committed. He said to go, they went. He said to go introduce the kingdom of God, they went and introduced the kingdom of God. And so the crowds are very different. The crowds show up when it's convenient. The crowds show up when they want to see the latest trick that Jesus is going to do, the latest illusion, whatever Jesus is going to do this week. Man, last week, Jesus made a guy's arm just grow back. And I hear he's on a mountainside. Let's go check out what's next. And Jesus says, hey, live this way. And they're like, no, I'm okay. Just do something else. Do something else. As uh, Reuben explained last week, like a clown, like entertain us. Jesus, entertain us, show us what you do, that's what we're here to see. If the entertainment dries up, we're out. We're only in it for the entertainment value. Uh, We're only in it because we saw a crowd gathering, and so we gathered as well. So there isn't a commitment level with the crowds. They are just showing up out of convenience, out of wanting to see what's next. And then the third group, and this would include the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, he lumps together as religious leaders. Uh, The Pharisees and Sadducees were actually two distinct uh, political entities. Um, The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did. Uh, By nature, what that meant is they studied law. They are lawyers, Pharisees and Sadducees. The scribes are the ones who recorded everything. They would have also been highly educated in the law, the law being the Old Testament. So most of them would have had the entire uh, first five books of the Old Testament memorized, Uh, Again, they would have had most of the prophets, if not all of the prophets, memorized. And what we now know as the Old Testament, most of them would have had that entire Old Testament memorized. So when Matthew is continually quoting Isaiah, and he is quoting other prophets, when Jesus is quoting Psalms, when Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, it's not that they had to look up the passage really quick because there were no chapters or verse titles. They just had it memorized. And so as Matthew is continually pointing out, especially in the last two chapters, as Isaiah said, as Isaiah said, this was intended for the religious leaders because they knew it. They knew what was said about the coming Messiah. So let's jump into the passage. 
Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 46. It said, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That seems pretty harsh. Now, we tie it back into chapter 10, when Jesus is saying, I didn't necessarily come to bring peace, but if you choose to follow me, it's going to put a a line of distinction between you and your, very specifically, mother-in-laws, father-in-laws, fathers and sons. And he goes through all of these family distinctions that especially at that time would have carried a lot of weight. You were who your family was. You were going to do what your father did as an occupation. And when Jesus says, I didn't come necessarily to create peace, but there's going to be sons who choose to follow me and the fathers are going to disown them. Or the father's going to follow me and the son's going to disown them. Or mothers and daughters or brother and sister. And I've come to create this distinction. And then as he is living this out, as he is in a home, meeting with his disciples, explaining them to him, one of them comes up and says, "Uh, Jesus, your mom and brothers are outside. And he goes, who are my mother and brothers? These, my disciples, are my mothers and brothers and sisters. And it's also very fascinating that he included mother and sisters because in uh, this religion mindset, women did not play much of a part. And the fact that Jesus includes them should not be overlooked, that he was very specific in including women in who were his brothers and sisters and mothers, saying that they play a distinct role in the kingdom of God, which would have very much stood out from culture at that time. So there's three things that I want you to take comfort in as you look at Jesus' life. Number one, Jesus lived differently than those around him. A couple weeks ago, uh, Mike Seaver came and he was speaking on Jesus. And he was saying how if it was up to you or myself to plan out uh, what that would have looked like, Like, we are going to come up with how Jesus was going to be the Savior of the world. We wouldn't have said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to take the Son of God, that Colossians tells us that everything was created by Him and for Him and through Him, that He is coming to bring uh, salvation, that He is Lord of all. Let's have Him be born to an unwed teenage mom. But, like, not in a house. Let's put Him in a stable. Uh, Let's have him be born in a tiny little town of Bethlehem, and so on and so forth. Nothing that happened is what the people were expecting. And then Mike said, and then we're going to have him kind of do nothing for 30 years. (laughs) So imagine Jesus is just living as a Jewish man would have. He took his father's trade, working as a carpenter. Let's hear for the carpenters out there. He took on his father's trade, and he is just living life. And Jesus, uh, again, his father is God, who through the Immaculate Conception impregnated Mary, and he is born. And so these brothers are his half-brothers, because Joseph was their father, and Mary their mother. He also had sisters. And so 
Now Jesus, and I can't imagine what it would be like growing up with Jesus as a brother. It's not recorded, so I'm not going to get into it. But now he is all of a sudden living differently. All of a sudden he's starting to teach. And people are showing up. And not just showing up, but he's up in Galilee where nobody smart is supposed to come from. And people are coming out to the hillside. 4,000, 5,000. Then he's starting to heal. Can you imagine if all of a sudden your brother just started like making people's arms grow back and leprosy disappear and dead people are rising again and blind people who've been blind their entire life can see and deaf people who've never heard a thing in their life can now hear? People that have never used their legs are now jumping up and down? That's what his brothers are going through. It's like, wait a second, for 30 years we didn't see any of this. And now all of a sudden, this is happening. Not only that, but the people that he grew up in, there's recordings of people saying, isn't this Mary's son? Like, we know his sisters. Like, what is going on? But what Jesus was doing is he was starting to restore. He was demonstrating his power by restoring things to how they were supposed to be at creation before sin entered and ruined the world. He's demonstrating his power over sin that only Jesus has. And as he's doing this, as he's demonstrating it in front of people, people are saying, surely this is the Messiah. As he asked Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? He goes, surely you are the Son of God. People are starting to believe in him. Which brings us to the second point. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. They thought something was sincerely wrong. So this, part, this portion of Scripture is also recorded in in Mark, and I want you to see what Mark says in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, this very house we're talking about, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. That take charge of him uh, in that time meant we have to get him and put him in a house where nobody can talk to him because he has lost his mind. He is uh, mentally unstable. This is the same terminology that we would do for somebody that we care about, who we recognize that they are not in a good place mental health-wise, and so we need to get them somewhere where they can get the help that they need. They didn't have that then, so they're literally going to take charge of him. They're going to take control of him and get him somewhere where they're not, he is not embarrassing the family. Get him somewhere where, where people won't see what he's actually doing. Uh, John also tells us about his brothers in John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, uh, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going to, up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. So again, Jesus' mom, Jesus' brothers think he's nuts. 
They think he's lost his mind, and they are constantly, his brothers are saying, hey, why don't you go down to Judea? And I believe in their mind, they're thinking there's a bunch of religious leaders there. They will put him in his place. Why don't you go there and announce who you are? Because they're trying to get him to stop. So, number one, Jesus lived differently than those around him. Number two, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. So, if you are in that particular area, that you are living differently because you are living as God has commanded you to live, and the world around you, whether it's where you live, learn, work, and play, any of those areas sees you as differently, just know Jesus went through that same thing. Maybe, possibly, and I've talked to some of you, and I know this is true, your family think you've lost your mind. Maybe they think, oh, this is a cute little thing they're doing. They go to church. They go to small group. They go to whatever. They do this stuff with their church people. They'll be back. They'll come back and join us again. Don't worry about it. It'll just be a little short stint. They'll be back. And you go and you try to talk to your family because your heart hurts for them because you now know what it is to be forgiven and to have the love and the joy and the peace that only God can give and your heart breaks and they look at you like you're crazy. That eventually you'll come back around and you'll go back to being normal Rob. Number three, you can take comfort in that Jesus has lived what he asked us to live. Jesus did this. Jesus went through it. Yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. He went through the emotions of being rejected by his own family. He went through the emotions of the people that he grew up with trying to distance themselves from him as soon as possible. So take comfort in that what Jesus is asking you to do and what Jesus is asking you how to live, he has done that as well. The word that stands out here is the will of God. If we go back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, as we were going through the Lord's Prayer, he said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, meaning God, bring your kingdom down here on earth. Use us as representatives. Your will be done. What you want to accomplish on earth, you do it on earth as it is in heaven. This is the part where we contend, and I've been saying this for about two years as we've been going through Matthew now. What that literally means is Jesus, or Father in heaven, God, as you speak in heaven and the angels immediately do it, help me to carry out your will here on earth so that when I read something, as the Spirit moves in my heart, so that as you ask me to do something, I do it. That I obey you and living out your will as the angels obey you in heaven. Why do we have to pray that? Because it does not happen naturally. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, help us to obey you here on earth as your angels obey you in heaven. So the question is, what is God's will? Now, I've worked at several Bible colleges I've mentioned before, and usually right around the senior year of somebody, their last year at school, they start to wonder what God's will is for their life. And I went through it as well. And since I attended about four different colleges, I went through it four times. And still... But we have a tendency to ask, what is God's will for my life, meaning where should I live? What occupation should I take up? What should I do? And those are all very good questions. Sometimes it's not that clear. Uh, I've been in times in my life, so when uh, Tab and I were praying about where to go church plant, both of us have moved around a lot in our life. What we would say is no place was geographically attractive to us because we didn't care where we moved. And so we actually had to start praying, and we prayed, and we looked at a couple different places to go. 
Uh, and it wasn't until we asked four other people to pray, and they said, you just tell us what God tells you. And the four people didn't know each other, and in one week they all, so the first one mentioned, what about Charleston, South Carolina? I was like, oh no, that will never work. Uh, I'm from New York, and that's in the South. I think I'm supposed to go back up North. Somebody else, have you thought about Charleston, South Carolina? Well, now I am. She's the second person this week, and then the third person, the fourth person. So it became pretty clear to us that God's will for was for us to go to Charleston. That's not always the case. I've had places in my life where I knew God was telling me to leave, and I had three different options to go to. I didn't know which one to go to, and a wise mentor I had said, just pick one. Pick one, do God's will. You'll be fine. It's like, all right. So that's what I did. So when he's talking about doing God's will, it's not necessarily clear. What he's talking about is specifically, what does Scripture tell you how to live? Uh, An early church father, Cyprian, said this, Now that is the will of God, which Christ both did and taught. Humility in conversation, steadfastness in faith, modesty in words, justice in deeds, mercifulness in works, discipline in morals, to be unable to do a wrong and to be able to bear a wrong when done, to keep peace with the brethren, to love God with all one's heart, to love him in that he is a father, to fear him in that he is God, this is to fulfill the will of the Father. So if you're not sure where to start, there's a couple ideas. Start by doing the very specific things that God has called you to do, to represent the kingdom of God wherever you live, learn, work, and play to live differently as you do so, to do so to bring God the glory and not yourself. And when you start living for God's glory and not your own glory, trust me, you will immediately stand out as different from the people around you. So what is the will of God? I'm going to give you a very short answer. Someone says, well, what's the will of God? It is to do the work of the Father. The will of God is to do the work of the Father. As Jesus demonstrated in his life on earth, he carried out God's will by doing what it was that God asked him to do. We have a very unique situation in the world that we live in. Again, most of you raised your hands, besides those that are too young, when I asked if you own a car. Why? Well, we can go anywhere, really. If I said, hey, Ben, you want to drive to Cleveland right now? Ben would, of course, say, no, Cleveland's a horrible city. I'd be like, yeah, that was a dumb idea, my bad. But if we wanted to go to Cleveland, we could. We have this freedom that we have that I would say probably the majority of the world doesn't. Uh, The majority of the world, people don't own a car. The majority of people don't get to travel. And so for them, if they've grown up in the same village that all of their ancestors have grown up in, and they don't have any of the modern things that we have, Chances are they're going to continue to live in that same village, but they have the same command to carry out the will of God where they are. So just because we have the ability to travel doesn't take away our responsibility to do the will of God wherever we find ourselves. And so I want to finish with three questions for you. And these are, seem like simple questions, but I assure you they're more in-depth as we go through them. Question Number one, are you a disciple of Jesus? Remember at the beginning we said there's these three different crowds. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you put your faith in him and are you pursuing holiness? Are you pursuing Christ-likeness? I want you to know 
that if you have never made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, our prayer is that tonight you make that decision. That tonight you know what it is to know the forgiveness and the love and the peace and the joy that only God can bring in your life. If you're not sure, again, it's easy to answer these questions with a yes or a no, but we have to examine our actions. As we say regularly, actions speak louder than words. Remember at the beginning, a disciple is somebody who obeys. A disciple is somebody who, when asked to do something, they do it, or they do it to the best of their ability. A disciple is somebody who wants to know what it is that they're being taught so they know how to live. And when you become a disciple of Jesus, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You have his word, and so that we can go to him in prayer anytime. We have his word. We have a community of people around us that help guide us. As Proverbs says, there's victory in the counsel of the wise, that when we're a disciple of him, we listen to the things that he has placed in our life so that we can closely follow him and pursue holiness in our life. Question number two, are you part of the crowd? So there's a distinction between the disciples, they obey and they live and they live for and they represent wherever they live, learn, work and play, but the crowd, they're just following it to see what's in it for them. Uh, They're an outsider just in case anything more interesting shows up. I haven't been on social media in a bunch of years, but I remember, and maybe it still is, you could send out a Facebook invite. It said, hey, are you coming to my birthday party? Answer yes, no, or maybe. And one time, uh, we had a birthday party. Uh, We sent out invites. There was a bunch of them. I think we got like three yeses, two nos, and like 140 maybes. Do you know how hard it is to plan food for 140 maybes? Very difficult. Turns out, not everyone showed up, and the guys I worked with got a ton of cupcakes the next day. I would always announce, by the way, I hate the maybe button. Do not click maybe or I will show up at your house. But that's how we follow Christ. If we are part of the crowd, we are in it to see what's convenient. Does it work out with my schedule? I'm not really that involved because maybe something better will come along. And so that, again, we have to examine our actions. Can we honestly say that we are a disciple, or when we examine how we live week in and week out, are we just part of the crowd? We show up to church once a week, but please don't ask me to serve. We show up, but don't ask me to be part of a community group. The people that I live, learn, and work with, and play with, if I were to tell them that I go to church, they would be shocked. So are you a disciple? Or are you part of the crowd? And then number three, are you like the religious leaders? The religious leaders were constantly opposed to Jesus because they thought they knew more than him. Now, if I was to take a pop quiz, please do not raise your hand. I'm asking you, do not raise your hand. And I was to say, hey, who here knows more than Jesus? I doubt anybody would raise their hand unless they were trying to be funny. So I'm not asking you to do that quiz. What I'm saying is, in the examination of how we live our life, do you, again, don't answer this, do you think you know more than Jesus? Here's the qualifications. Jesus said to do this, but surely there is a loophole for me. Why? Well, simple, I'm better than all those other people. I shouldn't have to do what they're doing. Check me out! I'm awesome! 
Thank you for the laughter. We would never say that, but do our lives demonstrate that? Do our lives demonstrate that, yes, that sounds good, but it's not for me because I'm above that? I don't need Jesus' salvation. I don't need to believe in him even though he gave up his life and took the beating intended for me and took the death intended for me and took my sin on his shoulders so that I might have freedom and then defeated all of those things when he rose again. So now I can put my faith in him and now I can have everlasting life. I can have a hope and a joy while I'm here on earth. But I know more than him. I'm smarter than him. Again, it seems ridiculous that the religious leaders who would have known God's word better than anybody else failed to recognize the Messiah when he was standing right in front of them, quoting Isaiah and Deuteronomy and Psalms and Jonah and so many other other things saying, I am the Messiah, but they thought they were smarter than Jesus. They were lawyers. They had created loopholes for themselves. No offense to the lawyers in the crowd. There are no loopholes. As Reuben said last week, you're either for him or against him. There is no middle ground. You either think you're smarter than Jesus or you are following Jesus. Tonight, we get to have an exciting time of three people who have decided to follow Jesus. Uh, we do baptism outside. I love doing it outside because uh, for us, baptism is just a public proclamation that you are associating yourself with Jesus, buried in the likeness of his death, and risen again to new life. And you are telling the people around you that you have decided to make this decision. And so tonight, that decision is also yours. Are you a follower of Christ? Are you a disciple of Christ? Or are you part of the crowd? Or do you think you're smarter than Jesus and that you are an exception and a loophole? A Puritan pastor back in the 1600s named William Law said, You are to think of yourself as only existing in this world to do God's will. To think that you are your own is as absurd as to think you are self-created. It is an obvious first principle that you belong completely to God. This evening, I'm asking you, who do you belong to? What do your actions communicate who you belong to? Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you just part of the crowd? Or do you think you know more than Jesus? Lord, I thank you so much for this evening, for the opportunity that we have to be able to celebrate you, to be able to worship you, to be able to bring you all the glory. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to uh, celebrate with these families as, as people have decided and want to publicly proclaim that they have decided to follow you, that they have decided to make you the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.